Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about The Spy Who Loved Me, starring Roger Moore, Barbara Bach, Kurt Yerkins, Richard Keel, Jeffrey Keane, Walter Gotell, and directed by Louis Gilbert. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Arnie, the podcaster who loves you. Aww. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> We are back for more Bond, our 10th movie in the Bond Eon listing, of course, our 11th podcast. And it's been three whole years since 007 hit the movie screens, and he came back with a vengeance in The Spy Who Loved Me in the summer of 1977, a very big summer in movies. Their idea of what to do when they came back with Broccoli trying to prove something, being the sole producer, is make it bigger, bigger, bigger. They had double the budget this time and say anything else you want to say about the spy who loved me but you can certainly see the money's on the screen and the money shot i mean agent triple x but i'm sure we're gonna get into it <laughs> yes. you know i didn't get that joke for years and then one day when i was watching it when i was an older guy i was like oh here's what i knew about this one i knew the song and i knew the goon nobody does it better and Jaws. These are things that even I, coming in as the newbie who remembers very little, knew was going into this one. That guy from Happy Gilmore was going to put in some fake teeth, and nobody does it better. Carly Simon. Yeah, I remembered that this one was one of my favorites. As a kid, this was one of the ones that I watched again and again, that it really was, as I recall, one of Moore's best. But we'll have to get into the plot, I suppose, to find out for sure. Arnie? When two nuclear submarines suddenly disappear, one Russian and one British, James Bond must figure out how and why. Traveling to Cairo to meet with a man selling plans for a submarine tracking system that could be involved, Bond encounters his Soviet counterpart, Anya Amazova, Agent Triple X. The two compete for the microfilm, but make an alliance of convenience when they are attacked by the giant steel-toothed assassin, Jaws. The villain behind the submarine kidnapping is Carl Stromberg, a web-handed marine biologist who has used his immense wealth to build an oceanic science station named Atlantis. Stromberg hired scientists to build the tracking system so he could kidnap the nuclear submarines and launch their missiles to trigger a nuclear war that would devastate all life on Earth, save for his people on Atlantis. In a new era of Soviet-British relations, Bond and Triple X are ordered to team up to stop Stromberg and fall in love along the way. But their romance ends when Amasova finds out Bond is the British agent who killed her last lover. She vows to kill 007 when the mission ends. They infiltrate Atlantis and are taken captive as Stromberg's submarines prepare to nuke New York and Moscow, but Bond escapes and releases a submarine of British troops to storm Atlantis. Bond issues new orders to the subs, forcing them to nuke each other, then confronts Stromberg, killing the man, and rescues Triple X as Atlantis sinks to the bottom of the ocean. But the mission complete, Amasova pulls her gun on Bond, but cannot kill the spy who loves her, choosing instead to make love to the British agent as credits roll. Now, going through all the materials for this in preparation for this podcast, I was very, very surprised how deep I got into everything, commentaries and behind-the-scenes things, before anybody related to the production finally admits that the plot is very, very similar to director Lewis Gilbert's last Bond movie, You Only Live Twice. 
And we've talked a lot in this series about the Bond formula, what it is, and I noticed how formulaic it is because we just recently watched You Only Live Twice because it's pretty much the same movie as the last one. Well, they couldn't exactly go off of what had happened in the book. I haven't gotten to that over at Books and Nachos yet, but I went ahead and read it ahead of time just so that I would know, and I'll just put it succinctly, there is no movie in the book. They had to do something. They had to come up with an original concept, so it's not surprising that, yeah, they borrowed a lot from a lot of their history, but sure, with Lewis Gilbert back on board, that's a good thing. You Only Live Twice is, for my money, still the second highest ranking Bond movie. So yeah, let's do that again. Let's get more into that kind of campy, crazy adventure. For me, I noticed a lot of similarities. I didn't specifically you only live twice so much as it was just like oh here's this bond trope again here's that bond trope again but now that you mention these are both gilbert films that does make a lot of sense why they'd pick that one so much but i hadn't felt so many pseudo similarities since live and let die and the man with the golden gun well don't forget you only live twice it had that base thing that swallowed a spaceship here we have a big ship swallowing submarines, trying to pit U.S. against Soviet. It's very similar. But Stuart, in the contract to get the rights to the book, Ian Fleming says you can have the title and nothing else. He did not like the book. So one of the reasons for the delay was because of the script, because they had to come up with a whole new story for the first time. And Kevin McClory, the guy who owns the rights of Thunderball, slapped an injunction on them because they wanted to use Blofeld and et cetera, et cetera. So that's why we have Stromberg in the place of Blofeld. Well, I don't mind having a new villain. I feel like that was a refreshing thing about Man with the Golden Gun, and I'm for it. Like I said, a Bond movie is starting to feel familiar. Let's face it, by the time you're doing 10 of the same thing, it's going to taste the same. It is going to have all of those similar feels. What I have been noticing and commenting on in our last couple podcasts is how they try and spice the flavor by taking what's popular. Live and Let Die, they went to French Connection and Blaxploitation. Man with the Golden Gun was clearly Bruce Lee Kung Fu. Well, this one, I gotta say, they're thinking about fish. They're thinking about Poseidon Adventure, and dare I say it, they're thinking about Spielberg's Jaws. I saw them hopping trends yet again, Jaws being a big summer movie in 1975. Two years later, here comes the Bond knockoff. With a character named Jaws. I'm surprised Spielberg didn't sue over that. Well, actually, Spielberg was thought of to direct this movie. Whoa! Yeah, back in 1975, when they were starting pre-production on this, before all the delays happened with the producer falling out and then the script, his name came up, but they wanted to see how that little fish movie of his did before they hired him. And if you know anything about Indiana Jones' history, of course, you all know that Spielberg wanted to direct a Bond movie very badly. So it would have been really cool to see a Spielberg Bond movie, and I never knew we came so close. I guess it would have cost us close encounters, but man, this would be a far better movie if Spielberg had been at the helm. But I can't imagine he'd want to go out in water again. I think you do one big epic on water and then you're done for a while, maybe for the rest of your life. It couldn't have been very tempting to do what they got to do here out in the ocean. Maybe he could have done the next one, Moonraker. That would have been something. It would have been something. So one thing I always think about when I think of The Spy Who Loved Me and it's the first thing I always think of besides the theme song is the opening credit sequence, the pre-credit sequence, because the whole thing revolves around that remarkable stunt when the guy skis off the cliff and all in one take. And even though I watched this movie three times for this retrospective, I watched that opening scene about seven or eight times. I could not get enough. I've seen it so many times. I could not get enough of that stunt. I only watched this movie once, but I did watch that stunt twice because I've been on kind of a grouch about the effects on this James Bond series. Ah, that crappy blue screen. Ah, that crappy blue screen. Oh, that rear projection. Because they didn't even have blue screen, did they, back then? They just had a big projector. But here I'm looking and I'm like, that looks legit. Son of a gun, that is legit. And then I'm like... Is he going to live through that? Because he drops those skis, and I'm like, aren't those going to cut his parachute open? But I think it was a camera angle thing. They just made it look more dangerous than it was. The ski actually clipped the canopy of the parachute, and he got away very luckily. Are you serious? Dead serious. That's what I'm thinking. I'm watching it, and I'm like, I wouldn't want to be that guy with those skis coming down on my head. 
<laughs> There's not another take of that one. I think <laughs> one and only for that. It's a good stunt. It's a pretty good scene. But I'm actually a bigger fan of the scene that happens before this. They have a good joke here where, okay, we know that a British sub has gone missing. A Russian sub has gone missing. Everybody's going to call their best guy. They're obviously going to call Bond on the British side. Russia's going to call their best guy. They have a lookalike. They have a Sean Connery-esque guy in bed making love to a woman. We think it's going to be him. We think that there's a doppelganger that the KGB has that's just like Bond, and I did not see it coming. I did not know that Triple X was going to be the chick, but what a fun surprise. Here's what happened to me with that scene, is they said call agent Triple X, and I'm like, oh boy, it's going to be a woman named Triple X. And I see her in bed with this pseudo-Bond, and I'm like, Oh, Triple X is already sleeping with Bond when the movie starts. And then he rolls over. I'm like, that's not Bond. Is that George <laughs> Lazenby? He looked more like Lazenby to me than any of the others. Nice. <laughs> and I'm really squinting. But the whole time I'm like, but the chick's Triple X, isn't she? Because a guy named Triple X in a Bond film, that goes a little more homoerotic than I think Bond would want to go in the 70s. And so they got me for just a moment going, is it really a guy? And then the phone rang, and I'm like, oh, she's going to take the call. I mean, what's so homoerotic about Triple X? I mean, Vin Diesel was Triple X. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a porn reference, although I got the joke once I got who Triple X was. Triple X just sounds like a badass. If it's 007, a Triple X sounds even tougher. A triple X sounds like a titty shot, okay? And this movie does have one, by the way. Did you guys catch that? In the credit sequence, it sure does. No, it also has one later on the sub. There's like a Playboy spread on the wall of a topless woman. I was like, wow, first titties and Bond. But when you have a Bond movie and he's had women like pussy galore, you name somebody triple X is not a guy. At this time in America, too, in 1977, absolutely triple X means pornography. I mean, Deep Throat and things had just revolutionized cinema. Well, a certain kind of cinema. What got me about the pre-credit sequence, which I hadn't remembered since the last time I watched this, was how, for lack of a better word, cheesy it was. It was very kind of over the top to me, everyone's performances, and it seemed like they were very much on purpose doing this to set the tone very early about how much fun we're going to have with this James Bond. And it almost rubbed me a little bit the wrong way so early. As the movie goes on, I don't mind it so much, but here I was like, when he says, for England, before he jumps out of the door, I'm like, really? Because <laughs> the music comes up like he's a patriot and he's going to go out and do it. And I'm like, oh, it kind of surprised me. I didn't remember that. And you mentioned the music. I definitely got a bit of a synthy disco vibe to our 007 theme this time as he was skiing. 1977, I definitely was waiting to see those kinds of influences show up. I guess we ought to be glad he just wasn't doing coke off a mirror or something. The different kind of snow he's just surrounded with. But I agree with you. I'm waiting to see the disco era appear in Bond. And that's key. A big part of Bond's appeal is even when the movies aren't very good. Like, take Dr. No, for example. A movie I didn't think was very good, but was kind of fun to watch. It's because it's just kind of a fantasy. The clothes, the era, the fashion... I'm a big fan of 70s movies, but we all know that decade is ugly. And are they <laughs> going to be able to pull this off? Are they going to be able to keep the 007 franchise being this image of glamour now that we've entered this period of time? I don't know. I'm a little skeptical. I think that it's going to cost the movie some points that we're no longer in a glamorous decade like the 60s, but that we're in this garish, much more absurd fashions of the 70s. But they juxtapose in this movie those outlandish fashions and the fun disco music with very classic world places like the pyramids and things like that. Or facsimiles thereof. Well, they actually filmed on location, but they also used models. It's kind of cool that they did film in these vast areas with the funny gigantic collars and the big bow ties and the awesome disco soundtrack. I just think Bond's going to have a struggle here, and I see it throughout the movie, of trying to retain a classic look while trying to remain current. And yeah, the disco Bond theme is part of it. Also, when we get into the title credit sequence, Carly Simon. 
not an obvious choice for a Bond theme Shantoos. I gotta say, this was the chick that complained about vain lovers. Her biggest hit, You're So Vain. Well, Bond's pretty vain. That song is about him. This would not be the person I would go to to get this Bond theme. I would think that he wouldn't be into her and she wouldn't be into him. Why not get a disco diva? Why not get Donna Summer? But I gotta say... Nobody does it better. It's going to rank near the very top of the Bond themes. This one is a shocker. I forget how good this song is. We are finally on the same page musically, Stuart. (laughs) I didn't think we ever would be. But this is a song that I like. I'm not a huge Carly Simon fan, but I like both of those songs you've mentioned. And I forget it's a Bond theme. This one reeks Bond to me because he used it in everything with Bond a great way to promote this character this is very much a bond song but you're the fan i'm the newbie i don't know that they used this with bond i thought that they used it with whiskey and cars and cell phones it sounds like a saloon tune it's like somebody hammering away at a, it's like piano man or something like that you imagine it happening at a grimy bar i don't think of in the classic sense most of these themes have been a woman like serenading this feels very different they have a, someone different at the musical helm it's now marvin hamlish and not john barry doing and I think that's part of it. But the song sneaks up on you. First, I'm like, this is just kind of a saloon jam. But by the end, when they're doing the sweetheart, all that, I'm surprised at how moving this song. This is a really good one. I dare say it's definitely top five. It might be top three. Agreed. It's in my top ones. We're not to the end yet, but I know this is going to be up there. And the same with me as well. But also, Stuart, not next movie, but a couple of movies from now, they try to repeat the success. So you're saying it's kind of an odd choice. To me, this is the beginning of they're doing this on purpose because this one was such a huge hit that they want to recreate the popularity of this kind of song. You just wait. This is the start of this kind of song being a James Bond theme. I can't think of someone in this mode that they use again until they get to Sheryl Crow, that kind of hippie girl kind of thing. I just don't think of Bond being into hippie chicks. But, hey, (laughs) if it works, it works. And I definitely am over the moon at the end of this credit sequence. It's a lot of fun. They set up here in the credits, too, that this really is a battle about gender. The spy who loved me. There is going to be a romance here. The first time since Honor Majesty's Secret Service where Bond's relationship is about more than just getting laid. That it's going to be some kind of battle of the sexes. I think that is a great way to play it. And I couldn't believe that in this whole movie... There's one Bond girl. Is this the first time Bond only bangs one chick? Because even in the movie where he gets married, he kind of goes off and has a dalliance. There are girls that are around here, but you're right. I don't think he gets with any of them. No. He gets with the girl in Egypt when he says, uh, when you're in Egypt, one should delve into their treasures. Oh, yeah. Implies he delves into her. Because she didn't die, I didn't pay attention. She didn't even get a name. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And Fekish's housewoman? She gets killed, and Bond kisses her to get information out of her, but he doesn't sleep with her. But he definitely tries to turn on the Bond charm to get information. I think it's the right choice, though. For better or for worse, they made this movie about this battle between him and one woman. They're on opposite sides politically. They're forced to work together. And they give a really great reason for them to not like each other. And that is that in that opening scene we thought was going to be unconnected with the rest of the movie, he actually offed the guy that she was in bed with. That was her man. Who was he in all of that action? I couldn't quite tell who he was, but... Do we know? Was he the one that got shot by the ski pole that was like a flare gun? Yes. Mm. Well, Sergei is dead. It's cool to think that the woman that he's going to get with has plans on putting him down as well. Well, this is a big feminist kind of movie. This is the first time that the Bond girl is equal to James Bond, and that's the big deal for this movie. And they really tried to push that, especially Arnie mentioned, or I think you mentioned, Stuart, how are they going to bring this into modern day? This is one of the ways they chose to do it. They have the woman be, quote-unquote, the equal to James Bond. 
I love the female equivalent, though. I really do. I know, again, just not even being as the Bond fan, they'll try this again later with Halle Berry and Jinx. I remember reading Entertainment Weekly about can Jinx do it, but I like seeing it here. We started off with the worst Bond girl on the beach naked picking seashells. Here, I like Bond with women who can give as good as he gives. So that was definitely a step up for me. Too bad he's not partnered with an actress that can be as good as Roger Moore. I'm going to say it's a double-edged sword here, because although I like it conceptually, Barbara Bach sucks! Oh, she does. And you mentioned Roger Moore. He feels like he's now very, very comfortable in this role to me. It's his third time out. He knows he doesn't have to compete with previous Bonds anymore. And so he's better than ever. And compared to this, I can't think of a Bond girl that's been great. But yeah, she sucks. They're all kind of Stepford wives. That's one thing I've realized going back to these. They all play it kind of flat. They're usually cast more for their looks than their ability to emote. And that's weird for people that watch movies now because even though we obviously have hot women in spy movies, they always have to be able to act a little. The standards have been raised to the point that we would not accept some doe-eyed supermodel walking around with a gun and saying, oh yeah, that's a spy. Let me know if you feel that way when we get to Denise Richards, but go on. (laughs) I don't know that that she was accepted. I hear a lot of gripes, but I haven't seen that one myself. I do feel like in the first, what are we now, in the first 15 years of Bond, nobody beyond Diana Rigg and Pussy Galore has done exceptional in the park. They're all various shades, but this is critical. Never has a Bond girl needed to be so important. And so you got to cast somebody that's good, that's got good comic timing, that's not just a pretty face, that's someone that seems dangerous. Brock, what do you know about Barbara Bach? Why did they go with this chick? I know that she's Ringo Starr's ex-wife, or maybe current wife, I don't even know. She was in Cape Man with Ringo Starr and married him. But other than that, I don't know where this chick comes from. Barbara Bach is someone they found four days before principal photography shot. They <laughs> could not find anybody because I'm right with you guys. She is so wooden is the word I was been using for the past 20 years with this role. And such an amazing role. We're told nonstop that she is his equal, but we never believe it. So we have to give the movie that mulligan that she's supposed to be Roger Moore's equal. But since they couldn't find any actor in Hollywood at all to do this role, they picked her because her screen test apparently was off the charts compared to everybody else. The person they wanted to do it, her name is Lois Childs, and she retired briefly from acting, but they got her for a future Bond movie, and we'll talk about her next time. On the bright side, at least they didn't hire somebody so bad they had to then dub all her vocals poorly. (laughs) (laughs) I got a theory about that. If you can't speak English very well, you probably won't live to the end of these Bonds. That does seem to be a pecking order here. Like, ah, you're pretty enough to be the first girl, but we need somebody to enunciate by the end of it. Yeah, there's been so many of them that have been dubbed. Even Ursula Andress, who lived to the end, was dubbed, though. True enough. Even Barbara Bach sounds dubbed. It's her real voice. She's an American, which just blows my mind. So, yeah, I'm right with you. Already to a point you made a second ago, I think one of the reasons Roger Moore is so good in this movie is not only because he doesn't have to worry about competing in the shadow of Sean Connery anymore. This script was written for Roger Moore. This is Roger Moore's James Bond. The director and him really made sure they put their own spin on it. They kept on talking about how they had the same sense of humor in these background materials I heard. And that seems apparent to me that this movie was finally tailored to him. Why make a Sean Connery movie with Roger Moore in it? And to your point, when Connery did this scenario, when he was in You Only Live Twice, he was the weak link there. He was the one that looked out of his element. I love that movie. I thought it was great fun. He was the one that didn't seem amused. So you're right. I think Roger Moore would have even been better in You Only Live Twice than Connery was. Whatever you want to say about who's the better Bond, in this environment, when you're going to go for gags and absurdity, Moore wins. Well, you say they have the same sense of humor, Brock. I think that Arnold Schwarzenegger needs to be sending a thank you, because while Connery had his few witticisms here and there, it seems to me like every scene, Bond is getting a one-liner in, and it's shades of Batman and Robin starting to come out. 
<laughs> there's that one scene when he's trapped in the car when Jaws is taking apart the truck where he has like five in a row. Mm-hmm. He won't stop and she <laughs> and I'm like, just take over the car, man. Stop making stupid jokes. This is where you trust your editor to find the best one and leave it alone. And you definitely should have left the he gets his teeth done by a riveter on the cutting room floor. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked about henchmen in the past. Jaws, to me, I know it's kind of over the top, but I don't care. I love this character. Arnie, I know you have very strong opinions on henchmen. What do you think of Jaws? I really want to hear what you think. Well, I know he's important because when I tried to get into Bond earlier in life, there was a James Bond cartoon series on Fox, James Bond Jr., and it had young Jaws in it, which really pissed me off because it really screwed with the continuity. Yes, even as a preteen, I was really upset. How'd that happen? They didn't meet till later. But as far as Jaws goes... I like the actor. He is very imposing. Richard Keel, Happy Gilmore. I've seen him at a couple of conventions. He's a huge, huge guy. You want to know what's so interesting is I watched a movie this year because it was on streaming on Netflix called Silver Streak with Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder. I watched it because it's Gene Wilder, Richard Pryor movie, and I hadn't seen all of those. And in that movie, which is before this movie, Richard Keel is in it, and he has steel teeth. It's almost the exact same role. And I'm like, is this like his thing? Like Mr. T always wore the jewels and everything he was doing, that same attitude. It blew my mind why he did that movie and then did this one with the same character. And it was not referred to at all in any of the background materials that I read, except maybe in passing, that his credits include Silver Streak. It's exactly the same character. Well, I can say only this much. Having read the Spy Who Loved Me novel, there is a character in it who is a henchman who has a mouthful of silver fillings. It's not described like he has fangs. He certainly doesn't go around biting people on the neck like a vampire. But there is a character that you could extrapolate and say, oh, this is where what Richard Keel is doing is being pulled from the source material. It's one of the only similarities, I can say, between book and movie here. Well, as far as his powers go with the teeth, I liked him as a giant strong guy. But those teeth, that's no odd job hat. That is just a really, really lame power that he has, what, sharp teeth and a super strong jaw. Whenever he'd go to bite somebody, he'd like be doing this in such slow motion that it didn't feel dangerous. Really, I'm like, you're going to kill him by what, giving him a hickey? This is what you've hit on that's key. He doesn't feel dangerous. Oddball felt funny and dangerous. This guy is only amusing. I think that Jaws is an amusing character that fits the Roger Moore era. I don't think he's particularly imposing besides the fact that he's big. It's goofy, and it does, I don't know if the word is dumb down the series, because the series had already gotten a little silly. It makes me feel like 70s-era Bond is never going to go after what 60s-era Bond did. I like the 60s balance of camp and seriousness more than what's happening here in this movie. But Jaws is the best thing about Spy Who Loves Me. I'll go ahead on the record for that. I don't know that he would have worked in some of the other Bond movies, but in this movie, he's the star. I feel that he needs a counterpart. And he has one for a little bit, but he's off way too quickly. But being a towering mute, having a counterpart would have greatly amplified him. We've had the dual henchman before. He's not the best part of this movie. The best part's the song. But he is very memorable. I knew coming in, he was there. I like the actor and what he does with the role. But yeah, the silliness, taking away the danger, taking away the menace and replacing it with... This guy isn't what I want out of a James Bond series. Well, they also take the menace out of James Bond here, too. You guys do realize that James Bond's intensity and the killer instinct is not exactly there. Bond does kill people here, but when he kills the Don Rickles guy, the henchman partner of Jaws, with a flick of the tie, that's as intense a killer instinct we get from Moore this entire movie. It's the character they're writing for Moore that's the difference besides Jaws being cartoony, because I found Jaws to be intense until he drops the rock on his foot. And after that point, he became a cartoon. I could never go with intense because he's just so slow-mo with the teeth. I'm like, that would not be hard to dodge. 
<laughs> Did they ever come clean about trying to say that they, in fact, were trying to do Land Shark? That they wanted to take what Spielberg was doing in the water and just transplant that as an enemy for Bond to fight? Because it's not a coincidence that he's named Jaws. It's got to be a direct homage and lift. And this movie's filled with that kind of stuff. They do Lawrence of Arabia jokes. They're punning all the time. I dare say Bond now works better as a comedy than it does as a espionage action movie. They did cop to going for comedy as much as possible. I found the Lawrence Arabia thing eye-rolling, actually. I forgot it was in the movie. And they put it in. It was a temporary track when they were editing. Everyone loved it so much they kept it in the movie. And it becomes a running gag in Roger Moore movies to do that. But I think, Stuart, what you're asking, I think is blatant because later in the movie with the Lotus, it's a Jaws riff right there. So it absolutely is. No one copped to it 100% that, of course, they named them Jaws because of this. But as you said, the character or something like it was in the novel, and that was one of the only things they retained. But since they couldn't use that character's name, they renamed him Jaws, because why not? Spielberg didn't have the clout to sue them yet. And he was a fan, so I'm sure he was enamored that his work had influenced this. But henchmen are one thing. For me, it's always key. The crux of this is the villain and what they're doing. What is he doing i got so many questions <laughs> i don't have answers for this i need to understand right off the bat carl stromberg is our villain i've seen this actor once before he was in a rosemary's baby ripoff called mephisto waltz it was kind of like rosemary's baby but with a piano instead of a baby and alan alda okay <laughs> trust me it's no better than it sounds she gives birth to a piano but yes this is the only time i've ever seen this guy are we to believe that he is actually from legendary Atlantis? I don't take that that way at all, no. I take it as he has the webbed hands, he has an affinity for water life. I don't take it that he has risen from the deep. He named it Atlantis because he fantasizes that about himself, but I don't take him as an Atlantean. And I would think that. I wouldn't think that Bond had gone that crazy, because that's real crazy. But why would he think it's a good idea to start nuclear war forcing everyone to live underwater? Man is not meant to live underwater. He might have webbed hands. He does not have gills. This is a very bad idea to poison our atmosphere and force everyone to live underneath the sea. And what does he have to gain by it either? You guys got the webbed hands on your viewing because I watched this movie three times and to see the webbed hands, I have to squint to see them. I'll tell you, I didn't realize it until the very end when he's dying. I'm like, those hands look rubber. Why the hell do those hands look rubber? But I got the home theater, and so I rewound a couple of close-up shots, and it's subtle, but I saw it on the 110-inch. When Bond and Anna go to meet him, they pretend to be a married marine biologist couple. His second-in-command, the evil woman, Naomi, says, whatever you do, don't shake his hand. That had my interest. I thought he was a germaphobe. Me too. I thought he was Harry Mandel. It made me suspicious. If that line hadn't happened, I probably wouldn't have been looking at his hands. Which makes sense. But then it just begs all kinds of questions about, is he some kind of merman? What is he, and what does he want to do? I don't need my villain to make sense. I understand that Bond is outrageous, and I want them to have outrageous plans. I like the fact that Goldfinger wants to make Fort Knox radioactive so he can have the monopoly on gold. I like crazy big plots. But there is a point, and we have reached it with this one, where I just can't follow what what it is they hope to achieve. Thank God, I thought it was just me. And no, it makes no sense in any reality. Is the idea that everyone is going to have to go move into his housing complex? Is he going to charge rent down there? Like, I just can't figure it out. I took it as some kind of neo-environmentalist type thing. He's going to nuke the world so that only his sea lovers survive. Because he says the only survivors will be here in Atlantis, so his people... There's no one there. He's got a staff. He's got a crew. 
but he kills everybody. I'm wondering about them. Yeah, are these people from Atlantis? Who would obey a man that's telling him, by the way, we're going to nuke the world, and then you're going to live in this hut underneath all this coral in the sea? How will you get air? I don't know. Well, then this is constantly a problem with James Bond films. We just have to go with they need a paycheck. The job market's tough for everybody. The the difference, though, is and what I think is the real problem with the plot is that none of us can understand if he just said, I'm holding the world ransom. It's weak, but we would understand if he has some grandmaster plan as to, as Stuart said, maybe charge rental fees for condos underwater. That's one thing. But we don't get any sense at all of what his main goal is beyond wanting to do it. And so that's why it's confusing. And it ultimately tells us that this movie isn't about the villain in the plot. This movie is about these two spies together. And for me, this guy is a very weak Bond villain, and I'm very surprised when people say they love this Bond villain. I just don't care. I love his elevator. I love the scene where the things <laughs> come up and the water sea life comes out and the two guys shaking their hands like doofuses and their thing blows. All that stuff is fun, but as far as a menacing villain goes, who cares? It's about getting these two spies together and fighting a common baddie. And that's what we have here. Oh, no, no, no. Two things. First of all, I did love the two scientists with their goofy grins thinking they got away. It's just sadistic because they get on that elevator and they think they're so screwed. And then they get away and they're just so happy. And then he kills them. And he even did the wire transfer and then undid it. That's just cruel. But I understand that the focus of this film is these two spies getting together and falling in love. But Brock, it matters. Having a good villain and having a coherent plot matters a lot. They need to have this romance against the backdrop of a intelligible threat. It would make the romance sweeter. By having this be the obligatory megalomaniac just because it's a James Bond film and the focus is this... That is a detriment. It matters a lot. It matters some. I won't say a lot because I could forgive this movie if it had just a weak villain because we've had some before. But the problem is by hinging on this romance, we also have a weak actress that's playing off of Bond. And for most of the movie, they're not even doing anything that matters. Not only are they not finding and getting to Stromberg, but the plot that they have them on when they're running around Egypt, explain this to me. They know that nuclear subs have gone missing, and rather than look for the nuclear sub, they're trying to get blueprints to the device that was used to capture them. How is that helpful at all? I don't know. They're tracing a lead is how I took that, is they're just trying to find out who could take these subs, who would have that power. Whoever has this would have that power, so let's follow up that lead. Right, and on the microfilm, the only thing they get is they find out Stromberg, as Q points out, he's one of the most richest men in the world, and tells the audience that, okay, this is the guy. So that's what the microfilm does. Egypt kind of bores me a little bit, that whole sequence, actually. Even though it's beautiful scenery, yada, yada, I don't care. The microfilm is pretty weak. It's a MacGuffin. Just forget these two together. So once they leave there is when the movie starts to work for me. And the microfilm just is a long way to go just so they can go to Egypt, just so they can figure out a Stromberg. How does the microfilm help them? At the end of the day, when they look at the plans, someone was stupid enough to put a stamp on it from the company that Stromberg runs, and they go, oh, it must have been developed at this place. I mean, who was that idiot? You see, you have hit upon the reason I stopped watching James Bond movies way back in high school is because I would be watching the movie and be like, now he's in Cairo and now he's on this boat. What is the impetus? It is always one line, one clue said one time, and it's so tenuous that... Okay, now we're going here. And again, it's like Brock said, it's all obligatory. We just want to get them to different scenes. We just want to see cool locations in a Bond film. But it is threadbare. 
Right, and that's why there are certain James Bond films that we all love, and there's certain James Bond films that we don't, and certain James Bond films that we see highlights in, and we enjoy, and I think we've, and during this course of this podcast series, we've pointed out some of the stronger plots of some of our favorite James Bond movies, but for this particular James Bond, this cookie-cutter James Bond movie, as you said, on the tenuous threads to go to each place, it really is about showing us a new location to have an action scene, then a new location for an action scene, and if you enjoy the action scene enough then you will enjoy the movie enough but what they also do is they pair us with these two leads that's supposed to carry the movie and as we all pointed out the lead girl is so weak that we have to help the movie along to really enjoy the core of the movie i know that they're pumping money into this thing but i'm not even enjoying it in that superficial doctor no way that's what i'm getting at believe me i am not asking more out of this plot than it wants to give me okay merman wants to start nuclear war so that atlantis can <laughs> be the only human colony or whatever okay fine i'll go with it if i'm having fun this movie's kind of ugly i think part of it's a part of the period and part of it is just the cars aren't as cool the hairstyles aren't as cool like the outfits just everything about this movie is less glamorous than the 60s bond era it's just not a decade you want to revel in and brock you say that the acting of the female, the villains don't matter so long as you're enjoying the action scene to scene. Mm -hmm. So this is what we're down to now is the action scene to scene. And I will give some of it some good props. I actually, for some reason, get a giddy, like, Knight Rider thrill out of the submerged car that turns into a submarine. I actually really enjoy that. I like the siege at the end. But so much of this action, because it's Jaws, who's just kind of the Jason Voorhees of the Bond villains just walking around and fighting people... The action isn't exciting. When he's tearing the car apart, it's silly, not exciting. So the action in this movie, by and large, doesn't work for me either. And it's few and far between, really. There's long stretches between action. I don't discredit the script. I think there's actually good jokes here. That underwater car scene, and she's like, they're being chased by guys in scuba gear, and she hits a button, and ink pops out, and she defeats them, and she goes, yeah, I read the blueprint for this car two years ago. That's a funny joke. She doesn't deliver it well, and that's the problem. I actually think that this script is ready to go. It could be just as fun as You Only Live Twice. What I don't understand is why I'm not liking it like You Only Live Twice. It's a compounded problem, but I really think that all the elements were firing in You Only Live Twice. They had the cool plane, they had the cool locations, they had a cool villain. I like Japan. I think maybe the problem is at the end of the day that it is this cheap model sticking out of the water. This layer is even a disappointment. I thought the model looked really good, actually. And again, once they got out of Egypt, I was going more with the movie. So I got used to Triple X's acting, I guess, but I was enjoying Roger Moore so much. I'm acknowledging all the weaknesses you guys are mentioning, but there are enough moments here for me to stay with the movie up until the end battle. The end battle is completely forgettable to me. Completely. It feels like the big battle and you only live twice, but I like that battle more. But I like the dialogue with the submarine captain, and I like some of the gags on there. I love the Lotus scene. I thought that was so much fun. I love the fish gag. There are certain gags in this movie that are kind of cheesy but are still fun, and there is a lot of sense of fun in this movie. But yeah, you have to give it that sense of fun if you want to enjoy it. It is weaker than you would hope. I think Stuart hit on something that... It has all the elements that should work together, but it just feels something is missing. When it comes to that submerged station Atlantis, what really killed me was I thought that Stromberg had video cameras outside showing him the sharks. It wasn't until it submerged that I realized those TV screens all around him are supposed to be windows. I knew it was a model, but I thought that the projected water effects in his office were the most damning thing. Yeah, I just wasn't in the layer. It's no hollowed out volcano. But at least the giant globe made sense in this one. Because I'm looking, I'm like, the set designer just brought another big globe. Oh, it's a map. It's showing where the subs are. 
if they're going to have this Cold War thing going, here's one idea that I had. I don't know if it would have helped anything or not, but where's Felix in all of this? This is a three-way battle, right? There's the Americans, there's the Brits, and there's the Russians, and they've all got to pool together to get their ships and their crew back. Why do they have this boring American captain when we could have Felix again? Well, Felix is not a captain of a ship. This is the actual captain of the ship, right? CIA is not involved here. It's just the Navy. I think it was actually a mistake to have the U.S. Navy involved. It should have been the Russians or it should have been the British because this isn't a three-way thing. This is a two-way thing. A British sub is taken and a Soviet sub is taken. Once the Americans were brought in, it became even more muddled. I liked it as a two-party investigation. I like that they acknowledge, hey, this is the height of the Cold War, but it's a new era of Soviet-British relations. We're working together. I love that. I don't know. I feel like if this were a three-way love triangle, if Felix were in here, it would be more inclusive. It's odd to me that all of a sudden it's about Americans. It feels pandering, honestly, that they're nervous that American audiences won't care about a British-Russian conflict. And so they throw in some Americans here at the end, and it just doesn't quite fit for me. But I kind of felt at the end it was getting a little cold because... Stromberg orders his stolen subs to nuke the U.S. and Russia, and Bond's able to issue new orders. The orders aren't, let's not nuke. The orders are, let's nuke each other and irradiate the ocean? Wouldn't you know, even if you have been living underwater with probably air that has been highly poisoned by carbon monoxide or whatever, and you're not thinking straight, even if you got the bins... (laughs) <laughs> and you've been out to sea for a couple of years, you would know that all those missiles that you were going to point at a country probably shouldn't go at a boat in the middle of the ocean. That that is not going to effectively destroy the human race. You'd know that much. Just following orders? That's why they're dead. That's why Atlantis <laughs> stayed sunk. Those Atlantean schools just aren't very good. So your point is that why didn't Bomb just stop the missiles entirely from going off? My point was twofold. He could have stopped the missiles entirely, and he's now nuked the water. (laughs) I mean, how much sea life is now dead? (laughs) I'm concerned! Bond is not an environmentalist. I think that's evident. He plays a marine biologist in the movie, but clearly he's not one. I didn't think of that. I just went with it because at this point, I frankly didn't care. I think the scriptwriter thinks the audience at this point also doesn't think that. But yeah, I guess you're right. Maybe they just weren't very sophisticated and knew that orcas needed to be saved, but it bothered me. Since they have the Americans, they're able to have the big, big, massive battle inside the tanker with all these people shooting everybody all over the place, and that was a little hard to follow. Okay, yeah. Again, I thought that might have just been me. I thought it was so much noise. You know, it felt like not a Bond movie. At that point, it almost felt like a war movie, like we're storming the fort, Sands of Iwo Jima kind of thing. they got to pass through the impenetrable wall, and how are they going to do it? Uh, Bond is going to take the head of a nuclear warhead, ride a disco ball, and blow up the wall. I mean, at this point, here's the problem. I'm not just suspending my disbelief. I'm suspending my attention. I'm not paying attention to this anymore because I know it's just going to resolve and I know how it's going to turn out. And I'm just kind of watching it in a way that's unengaged. Uh, That makes two of us. I checked out. Yeah, and then it keeps going. Then it's like, all right, so World War III is averted. He's got an hour to go back and rescue the Russian chick that wants to kill him. And that wet bike he rides, by the way, that's the first time a jet ski was ever seen. To you and me and everyone else, probably listeners, jet skis are everywhere. Apparently, this was like cutting edge at the time of this movie. Can you believe that? Because I couldn't believe that when I heard that. I imagine it had been cool at the time, sure. Yeah. What got me at the climax of this movie was how quickly and how boring he did away with Stromberg. That, again, shows us how much the villain really didn't matter in this movie was how quickly he was dispatched with that under-the-table tube. What is that? A gun as long as my banquet table? In case you want to shoot just one person sitting at the other end. This takes the whole convenience store shotgun underneath the counter thing a little too far. This is a guy who has a floor of an elevator collapsing so he can kill who he wants to at will. This guy thinks of everything, Arnie. If he wants to kill the person sitting to his immediate left, I'm sure. There's a second gun? Yeah, (laughs) something. And it only had one bullet, too. That's a mistake. 
agree with you completely. It seems stupid also that Roger Moore would then just go ahead and shoot him underneath the table through the tube. It just seemed complex for no reason. Yeah, shoot him in the head. Why shoot him through the gun? What if the bullet didn't penetrate the gun at the other end? At the very least, it would probably scrape against the side and slow down and not be as effective. The only thing I liked that this guy had was the shark tank. And we've seen that before, even. That wasn't even original. Not only in other Bond movies, but in Jaws. When the secretary gets dumped, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is the opening of Jaws. Yeah, and every shark tank that villains have have a giant magnet above it, just in case. (laughs) You're not going to get me to dog any fight where he has it out with Richard Keogh. This is the fun stuff. Like I said, Jaws is the only person that's engaging me on any kind of level. It's a superficial kitty level, but hey, at least I'm having fun when Roger Moore hauls him up by his teeth on a magnet, and he has to go by the shark. That's kind of badass. He's thrown in the shark tank, and the shark loses. That was cool. I knew Jaws goes to space. This was one of the few memories I had coming in. But when he's fighting a shark, I'm like, how can he get out of... Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, and of course, named it Jaws, etc. We talked about before the Jaws connection. Clearly, that's something they had to do, have Jaws versus a Jaws, quote-unquote, in the shark tank. And I'm not sure if you guys knew this, which is kind of cool. They filmed two endings of this. The producer suspected Jaws was going to be as popular as he was. So they decided to use the alternate ending, seeing him swim away at the end of the movie, instead of him perishing in the Atlantis bubble. So that's pretty cool. Their hunch was correct that audiences would dig Jaws. Because I agree, I think this is so much fun at the end. It's just really weird they have a convenient magnet there. That's all I'm saying. And you only lived twice. They had a giant magnet lift the car up, didn't they, in the car chase? This director loves giant magnets. Maybe he has a a set at home or something. All I know is I'd rather have Jaws swimming away than the Russian chick popping up in the sex boy at the end. This was a disappointment. (laughs) You've hinged everything on this relationship, and I don't care that they get together. I don't care that she gets over him killing the lover. And This is the crucial misstep of the movie is that the spy who loved me should have loved somebody else. And she lived, too. You guys had told me that his girl would die, and I really thought she was headed to die. And when she lived, I'm like, now we got her and Jaws in the next film. Well, the Bond lead rarely dies. It's the girl in the first reel, or the second reel, who sleeps with Bond or somehow has sexual chemistry with Bond, who gets killed. Never the lead actress. Yeah, the only one that gets killed in this one was the chick that kind of flirted with him while she was trying to kill him in the helicopter. That is essentially the one that got it. Feckish's house lady. Yeah, they messed with the formula this time. They didn't give us two girls. They really only gave us one girl that mattered. I always prefer two girls, I'm just going to (laughs) say. Duly noted, thank you. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend The Spy Who Loved Me? Stuart. A real surprise. I remembered this being strong, and I can see why I liked it so much. As a kid, there's a lot here. The silly Jaws villain, the outlandishness of a fortress at sea. You don't ask the questions that anybody over the age of 15 is going to ask when I was at the age that I first saw this. But it does not hold up. That is the sad part. I thought this was Roger Moore's finest hour in my mind. I was sure that this was going to be his best. I think it's been a stair step down. I'm going to go ahead and say, I think Man with the Golden Gun is better than this movie and a lot more fun than this movie. That Moore has, although grown into the role, I think that he might be getting better or at least treading water. Each movie that features him is getting lesser in my mind. And I know where we're headed, so I'm really worried now. But I gotta say, it's not a strong not recommend, but it's a disappointed not recommend. I thought I would like this one. And truth be told, it's not very good. So, not recommend. Arnie. I'm right on the same page with you, Stuart, because coming into this one, I had said in a previous podcast, my fear was that we were in the doldrums. This would be the hardest phase of Bond for me, the non-fan, the newbie to get through, because I know what we're talking about next time. But this one I had heard was supposed to be good. And so I was taking it that this might be a good one before we get into just crazy crazy silliness. But no, I am very disappointed, and I agree that each Bond movie is getting successively worse with more. 
I'm going to take a line from the movie itself. I was a Bond fan in the 70s. I would tell more to pull out immediately. <laughs> Not recommend. You see, I don't think Roger Moore is the problem here. I think Roger Moore is actually one of the stronger things here. I think what the script is one of the stronger things here. I like the Lotus scene. I like the opening scene. I like the song. And I like Jaws very much. The problem here is the plot, the villain, and the girl. And even the gadgets here, we have the Lotus... And we have a cigarette case film viewer. <laughs> I mean, the gadgets aren't as cool. It has a lot of cool moments in it, but does it cohere for me to be an enjoyable Bond experience all the way through? As the Bond fan, I'm always surprised when all these Bond fans say this is one of the best Roger Moore movies, if not the best Roger Moore movies. If you look at all the critics over the years about this, that's constantly said. Maybe those reviews are 20, 30 years old, maybe. But I guess back then it was a breath of fresh air after Man with the Golden Gun. I think it's a great improvement over the Man with the Golden Gun. But I really have trouble understanding why fans think this is the best Roger Moore. I know what I think the best Roger Moore is, and we haven't seen it yet. And I am very confident that I, you'll agree with me, Stuart. But we'll see that in a few films from now. Right now, what I'm saying is I'm on the fence on whether to recommend it or not, because I remember this movie being a different movie than it is to me right now. So this movie is right there on the cusp for me, but much like the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street or even Tron when we did that retrospective, there's enough here for me to have enough of a good time. So it's a weak recommend. I wish it was stronger. Based on the reputation of this movie, I really thought it was going to be a nice, solid recommend. But it's like the weakest of recommends just for Bond fans only is what I guess I'm saying. It's disappointing. I agree with you both. But hey, that Lotus is cool. It's not all bad. I tend to want to see the ones that are really hated more positively. I was like, oh, man with the golden gun. It wasn't that bad because I had heard it was so terrible. And then this one I had heard was so great. I'm like, well, it's not very good. Truth be told, they're all kind of there really in the same mix. It's not like one is so much worse than the other. It's just my expectations. I really thought this one was going to be great, and it's certainly not great. I can understand why you'd have a good time with it if you don't pay too much attention to it. It's really only for diehard Bond fans. This is not an essential one. Well, if we can't go to the sea, fly me to the moon. But wait! They told me we were going to for your eyes only at the end of this. Arnie, Frank Sinatra was actually tapped to do the theme song for the next movie. Funny you should say that. It is, because I very rarely think of Sinatra at all, and I didn't know that. Yeah, well, it's a little fun piece of trivia, and we'll share more of those next time. If you want to discuss your impressions of this movie, you got to go to our forums and tell us what you think. This movie has certainly had a great discussion here, and you can find that link at nowplayingpodcast.com. You can also go to our Facebook and Twitter accounts where you can see us post many movie reviews and announcements of new shows. And please, if you're going to iTunes to download this show, please leave us a review, a positive review with that, in our James Bond feed so other people like yourself can find this podcast and share it with others others and if you're going to our website you might want to exercise your democratic right to vote no we don't care about whether you're going obama or romney we want to know what horror movie you want to see this halloween yeah we are going to do a bonus show because since james bond is going through october and november we know that it's halloween we should do a little bit of horror and we're putting it up to a vote for you guys which movie we do is it going to be Cabin in the Woods, this year's film, that other, other Joss Whedon film that's not Shakespeare or superheroes. Yes, definitely a game changer as far as the horror movie goes. Interesting, got its own fans. We've also had a lot of requests, and here's your opportunity to go trick or treat. I know every year we get bombarded with emails of, you gotta watch trick or treat, you gotta review trick or treat. Okay, tell us that. Go vote for it if that's the one you want. Or the third one, since our donation series going on right now is Zombies, Zombies, Zombies with Romero. Do you want us to watch another zombie film, Zombieland? Haven't seen that one, but be curious to do it. If that's what people want, I'll be the newbie. It's great. The guy who creates Facebook goes on the run from zombies. Huh? With the help of Woody Harrelson and that chick from The Amazing Spider-Man. <laughs> Gwen Stacy and <laughs> Mickey from Mickey and Mallory. 
and Little Miss Sunshine all get into the mix. I'm down for any of them. Honestly, sometimes <laughs> when we put things up for vote, it's because I can't stand the thought of doing it without somebody saying that it needs to happen. But here, I'm totally open. <laughs> any of them sound like a good idea. And in a month, we'll see who the winner is and we'll release that show. And don't forget, we do have our donation drive going on. $10 minimum, $15 recommended donation. Get you all the Romero dead films. And for a $25 donation, you also get the three official remakes. All those details are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Click the zombie banner at the top of the page. Great. Well, we'll bring some brains, Brock, but we get some bad jokes too, I think. And don't forget, Books and Nachos, if you can't get enough Bond, then we will be covering the continuing Ian Fleming adventures as they were released chronologically in print. We're covering those now at Books and Nachos. I've been doing a few. Brock's getting in the mix. Join us over there to continue the 007 conversation. So we will join you next time when James Bond decides to blast off into outer space. Now playing, we'll return with Moonraker. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, Jams. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. M really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Vinganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. In the summer of 1977, a very big summer in movies. But not for this movie. (laughs) It's a big movie for space movies, as I recall. Well, it's a big movie for my life. So I always consider 1977 to be a huge year in movies where probably, well, Close Encounters came out that year, too. Sure. And Annie Hall, I guess. I mean, Deep Throat and things have just revolutionized cinema. Well, well a certain kind of cinema. Yeah. I, I don't know if it turned everything upside down, but it got a lot of people off. Sure. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure how to say that. <laughs> she sounds dubbed Catherine Bach. Uh, Catherine Bach. I always want to call her Catherine Bach, which is um, Daisy Duke. Sebastian Bach. 
because it's Jaws who's just kind of the Jason Voorhees of the Bond villains just walking around and biting people. Not that Jason Voorhees bites, but you see where that metaphor fell apart. Hold on, I got a plane. Will it then go underwater? You'll go underwater? I said, no. will it then go underwater? Forget oh. It. oh, okay, I'm sorry, you're making a joke. Right. Yes. Okay, I was confused. Um, what was my point? Wh- wh- why not, you don't like it? You're not the movie, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's my point. <laughs> <laughs> Just say it so as... Not recommend! Next yeah, movie! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, this is really still height of the Clone War, but it's a new era of Soviet-British relations. We're working together. I you love said that. You, you I said did the, the Clone War. Your father fought in the Clone Wars. Yes. Well, it was 77. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh boy. <laughs> And they're trying so hard to make Roger Moore look different than back different than Sean Connery this time. <laughs> yeah, I'll just say that line. This is the height of the Cold War. I almost said clone again. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of speaking of Star Wars, though, I can't see it's like an outtake. Forget it. But um, Jeremy Bullock's one of the guys in the sub oh. in the beginning of the movie. That's oh, right. Jeremy. He sells pictures of himself in that. I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. He sells pictures of himself in anything. <laughs> in his underwear. For if you get paid for <laughs> You pay the 25 <laughs> But he still has a Boba Fett backpack, which makes no sense. Anyway, let's move on. It's because of Bond that he got the job. I mean, I, I've read his autobiography. I've said too much. Let's move on. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know who you're talking about. I know what we're talking about next time. I have memories of it. I've talked to other people about it. But this one I had heard was good. (laughs) You make it sound like the clap. (laughs) 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 I've gotten tested for it. I tried to get screenings. I asked people, have you ever been involved in Moonraker? Join us over there to continue the 007 conversation. So would you say this is the bondage of Venganza Media? No. You would say that. I would say (laughs) (laughs) You can say it all you want. I'm not going to say that. I would say joke that bad, which is a lie because I've told (laughs) one But uh, but usually they get cut. (laughs) This one will too, but it'll be in the bloopers. (laughs) 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 Woo! Now playing, we'll return with Moonraker. Moonraker.